I think it's about going all in on on whatever it is. When you're doing, being relentless, going through it, um, not accepting those compromises, you know, the death by a thousand cuts. Yes, there are always compromises in any in any project. There are restraints that are that or constraints that are going to hold you in, into a certain path. But if you've got that godlike passion, it doesn't matter if you didn't finish first. You, you're going at it and, and you're going through it and there, there's, there's a contagion that goes with that and, and the team gets it and, and we're all running with it. And people who are there for a job actually fall by the wayside because they, they, they just can't be part of that. It's just, it just gets too intense. It gets, you know, it's not for them. They start not showing up. Welcome to the Mass Startup Podcast. My name is Michelle Mudar. This is a podcast for Africa's opportunity seekers, problem solvers, future shapers, world builders, and entrepreneurs. This podcast is meant to be a platform to encourage, empower, and educate young people in Africa on entrepreneurship, startups, and business. Hi, I'm David Dondi, and I'm a disruptor who has built and runs Truth Coffee Roasting. And uh, if you don't know what that is, it's a micro roastery based in Cape Town, where we do things a little differently. We've got a cool cafe, uh, we've been fated as the world's best coffee shop, uh, but really we're trying to make coffee taste absolutely incredible and delicious. And that, that path to making coffee taste like uh, the promise made by the aroma of freshly ground coffee is uh, the dragon that's chasing us. That's incredible. Um, there's something about the way that you do things at Truth um, that was a completely different experience from anything I've ever had at any other coffee shop or any sort of coffee experience. Um, what was it that you guys did very early on to separate yourself um, from the norm and the mean of what coffee culture might have been at the time in Cape Town or um across the country you know the saddest thing about south africa tell me david it's the words ach shame mm. and i think when we embrace that concept we shoot ourselves in the foot we feel sorry for ourselves we we hurt ourselves and we break that precious thing called innovation and entrepreneurship and when you refuse that word, when you, when, when you hate mediocrity, when you don't feel sorry for yourself, and when you set out to build something from the beginning based on philosophical principles and based on doing the best in the world and setting out to be world's best, then you end up with something different. And that's what I did. I didn't, uh, didn't set out to build another coffee shop in Cape Town. I set out to create a ripple in the pond of coffee. Yeah, and you guys certainly did that. Um, how do you think the sort of coffee culture um, in Cape Town as well as across the country has changed um, since you guys started? Uh, I think I need to go back a little bit further than that. So uh, South Africa was in this thing called uh, second wave coffee, which was the invention of the Italian coffee machine. And that really started in, in the 70s uh, in, in all seriousness with a variety of uh, Italian companies coming in and various aficionados pushing, uh, you know, uh, 
pushing the idea and quite frankly a lot of Italians in their own home waving that that flag and then in their restaurants. And then we had this next wave that came in and it didn't come in from from me. It it came in with Seattle Coffee and uh, Pete and and his partners. And we had something that was a lot better and that set a bit of a standard. And then things went on. And quite frankly, when I first started roasting in, in Cape Town, which wasn't at Truth, it was when I founded Origin, uh, we had Vida that had just opened its first store and had made coffee cool. And we walked into that environment and, and built Origin. It was all about my geekiness, our geekiness, making coffee something different. But it, it started to enter that, that sketchy domain of wine where it can be a little bit hard to get into and you don't feel like you speak the language. And I wanted to do something different with, with truth. I wanted it to be not about how clever we are, not about how great the farms are that we're using, but those, of course, are, are, are givens, but about how you should be enjoying the coffee or, or how you enjoy the coffee. And, you know, and it was to be playful. Um, there was always a danger that our environment, which is a steampunk environment, if you haven't been in, uh, was going to become a Disneyland and interfere with the product experience. And that's always been a tightrope that we've had to walk mm. with making a super cool, holistic environment, but with the product leading the way. And I think uh, somehow we've pulled that off. Definitely. Um, well, I hope so anyway. <laughs> I mean, if you rated, you know, the best coffee shop in the world, I think you've pretty much achieved something, right? <laughs> Yeah, but but you know the only place from there is down. You know <laughs> but you don't really strike me as someone that really looks at life um, from that perspective. That you know, um, no. you, you sort of just reach the mountaintop and then depression hits. Oh no, there's nothing else to conquer. Um, what would you say is the the way that you keep yourself motivated to keep pushing the boundaries of what this needs to become and how it becomes that thing. Uh, so Einstein is credited with this, but I don't think it was Einstein. Uh, you know, the cure for boredom is curiosity and, uh, you know, the cure for curiosity. There, there is no cure for curiosity. So mm. I think it, it's keeping that, that beginner's mind, keeping that, that young mind, um, you know, and, and being playful in that space. And the really, I need a tinker. I, mm. I, I need a strong ops partner which I have to stop me interfering with that which is working but but start breaking that which isn't working and you're constantly reinventing um, I think this shop looks static to the casual observer but if you were actually to look a little deeper you'll see we, we to stay in the same place we need to keep forging ahead quite fast the the, the foot's always on the accelerator um, and at the moment I'm, I'm uh, playing in a new space, which we may, maybe if you push me hard enough, I'll talk a little bit. <laughs> um, but just to backtrack a bit, um, you know, the sh shop you're speaking about or the store, um, it's completely designed to create a different and otherworldly experience. What do you describe it as to someone that's never been there? And like, why was it so important to create an experience versus, you know, most coffee shops, they just go, look, man, um, there's a chair, there's a table, here's the coffee, just sit down and drink it. But with you, there was like okay. theater and like so, something else entirely. 
So it's not about theater. It's about first principle thinking. And remember, I said truth is based on philosophy. And our challenge is always to go back to first principles. And when you think you're at first principles, you're not. There's always a layer below that. So, uh, you know, coffee's great. You get to sell the lost socially acceptable and legal drug, caffeine. Um, and if you believe that, you're a fool because that's not the drug that I sell. Mm. Uh, the drug I sell is, is a drug called dopamine. And for most successful companies, that's the drug you're selling. Mm. Um, if you're not providing a service you, and you're providing a product, if you really want to sell something, if you want somebody to enjoy it, it's, it, it's dopamine that you're selling. That's that, that rush that you get from an experience, from joy, from remembering, from coolness, wh whatever it might be. And to sell that, that dopamine, I have to... I have to make you feel something. I have to move you. And my space has to move you. And uh, we designed the space around a steampunk theme. And the steampunk theme actually came about from another unrelated conversation. I was walking through the V&A waterfront with the, uh, one of the top designers I know, Haldane Martin. And he turned to me, a completely unrelated project, and he said, David, you know what you are? I said, what, Haldane? And he said, steampunk. And in this moment of epiphany, I knew I had to build a steampunk cafe. <laughs> it took me a year to find the space and a year to build it out. And, and here we are. Yeah. And if you don't know what steampunk is, it's what happened when goths discovered the color brown. <laughs> 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 um, you know, I, I look at the, so I can compare at least um, the, the in-store experience versus the online experience. Um, and, we're going to chat about, a bit about sort of that move um, to going online. But the thing that struck me about the Truth um, online store was like the simplicity and the very clean lines. And just like it felt like I wasn't being um, overwhelmed in any way. I felt like I could understand what I was buying and like the value that it could bring to me as someone that wants to get into serious coffee. You know, it feels like if you want to take a step up, this would be the best you know, simplest way to do it without sort of the pump and circumstance of like trying to be a barrister overnight, right? Um, was that intentional? Okay, okay, so now we know. So now we know one person got it. <laughs> <laughs> I really thought it was like so so different from the in-store experience. Like, why was that so important to try and you know strip down and like make it as simple as possible for someone to go? I want to get into real coffee and like really, really invest myself in learning about this culture and how to make it much better as well. Um, well how important is that for you so guys? Totally important. So remember when I said it at the beginning, we didn't want the, the theater of the store experience to get in the way of, of our coffee. We also don't want it to get in the way of our brand. Mm. Although our store is steampunk, our brand certainly isn't steampunk. Um, and it's not a, a necessary requirement. And then going back to simplicity, it's not simplicity. There was a book you had written years ago, I can't remember the author, called Simplexity. And the idea is making something as simple as possible, but no simpler. And, and you need that complexity of offering, but you need it to be as simple as possible. And when you start taking garnishment away and you're left with the essence of something, I think it was Rodin who said sculpting is incredibly easy. You start with a block of stone and you remove everything that isn't your sculpture, you know. Mm. And, and I think that's what we have to do. We have to uh, sculpt an experience. And whether it's an online experience or a store experience, 
we need to we need to get rid of the distractions that that take us away from the fulfillment of what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, and obviously with the advent of COVID and everything else that was happening, you guys probably had to shift your model a bit and do some different things. Um, how um, difficult was that impact of COVID? Um, knowing you know you guys want to create this amazing experience inside the store, but now you can't necessarily curate that experience, and that experience needs to. Sh- be shifted and changed. Um, how do you guys deal with that um, that that idea? Well, in a sense, we didn't. Um, I tend to take a longer view on most things and not look at a short-term view. Mm. And I think uh, one of the drawbacks of being able to see the future is you always get the the timing wrong. Uh, <laughs> but you know, it's pretty obvious that the world's going to return to a kind of normal in about two years. Yes, there are going to be some societal differences, some ways of working are going to change fundamentally forever because technology allows that, and we've had rapid adoption of that technology, and that technology is normalized. But we, we humans, we're going to go out to restaurants, we're going to do what's expected. Um, the things that we've changed is more long, long-term Coffee isn't something that travels particularly well. When I say that, I mean internationally because of the timelines involved. You want your coffee fresh. So what what we actually did is we sat down at the beginning of COVID, when I say we, me, um, and went, like, what do we do? What do we have? Um, who are our people? What are our skills? What are our equipment? And what could we do be doing that amortizes that, that space and feeling and skill set and leverages into other things that, that we haven't seen. And remember, I said earlier, if you push me hard enough, I'll, I'll tell you what I'm doing next. <laughs> well, uh, that next is is the outcome of those conversations. Yeah. Um, what do you look at as being sort of um, what comes next um, from a coffee culture perspective? Um, yesterday, you know, I sat down in a coffee shop for about three hours and Of course, there was like sort of that, you know, I'm filling out a form just to get in. Um, I'm putting on my mask if I'm not drinking the coffee. But on the whole, it felt like a really normal experience. And as human beings, obviously, we have very short-term memory. And I feel like yesterday's um, experience made me feel like the last six months barely happened. And people are going back to their normal, right? And whether it's going back into coffee shops, going back into restaurants... Um, how do you think uh, the future will look for that sort of um, restaurant, coffee, and um, hospitality um, um, industry? Honestly, other than international travel, not different at all. The moment regulations let us move the tables a little closer together, that's going to normalize. Mm. Um, you know, I think we've got three groups of people out there. We've got the utterly paranoid. Uh, we've got the Khatful who are out in abundance and we've got everybody else and everybody else is moving into the Khatful uh, paradigm and the paranoid are, are gradually coming out too. So I, I think it is the beginning of the end and yeah, we'll probably have some kind of second wave that'll create a secondary panic. I think the panic was necessarily falsely induced by governments around the world in order to get a reaction. I think the pendulum swung too far. The pendulum will swing again too far and will be too laissez-faire. And then the pendulum will, will swing over again, but not as far the second time into the paranoia. And then, you know, everything will flatten out and we'll go, well, there was a bad flu. So what? Uh, of course, we will never know how bad it would have been if we hadn't done the things we did. But, yeah. 
you you can't you, you can't measure what what didn't happen yeah um the first time i ever spoke to you um actually the most recent time i spoke to you was during a, a call um for an event and you mentioned something that sort of stuck with me because i think it, it's very difficult to be a young entrepreneur trying to figure things out one how to be young how to be a man and then how to be an entrepreneur how to be a successful entrepreneur and you mentioned um kamiwaza right and you said it was the godlike <laughs> way of doing things can you please go back into sort of what that is how it works and why it matters totally and i i think everyone's got to take themselves back to the kid they were in junior school and you were asked to run that 100 meter race and for you know for the 20 people who are in the race all but one one kid didn't win and for the other kids they had an incredible time running their heart out running like the gods and it's that experience it's doing it with complete passion and in that godlike way that drives us that that gets us into that race and having fun and it actually doesn't matter what position you 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 finish in it it's how you're doing it and if if you find an opportunity that lets you do things in that godlike way you know success is its own result you know we need to stop measuring things in just financial success and go and speak to most entrepreneurs we like the the greatest successes were abject failures if measured by you know profit and loss and balance sheets and what they sold the businesses for because most of those businesses tanked uh e- even the overnight successes took years and years and years i think there was this guy steve jobs he started uh, some fruit company and he got <laughs> fired if i remember correctly and you know that that's how it works yeah. and you know it it's having that passion that makes it worthwhile it's it's not the outcome hell nobody gets out of this alive you know it <laughs> what is success but i can tell you what failure is failure is going through your day with mediocrity failure is hating the environment you're in hating yourself resenting the outcomes that you've produced and and just embracing the cuckness and we've got no right to do that you know that's short go for it fail fail hard fail fast but but fail with that passion and and fail with joy yeah um in in your life when do you think it really hit you that you know you had to shift your mindset to that sort of godlike manner of doing things was there a moment you feel like um it really sunk in you know where you understood that if you didn't you know get to a much higher level of doing things or making things or creating things then that sort of failure would be inevitable No, I've I've never looked at failure. I've uh you know, I've never been one to do things half-assed. I've always done things whole-assed. Um you know, you've got to you you've got to go for it and I've I've never been scared to fail. I've never been scared to make a fool of myself. I've never been scared to go against public opinion. I think I I think that's the journey and I think the hard knocks have forged me into believing this more. it's i've never looked over my shoulder at what the competition are doing i've never looked over my shoulder to see how how the guys behind me are running it's it's about going forward and you know then you have these experiences and coming was it isn't my idea it's seth seth godens idea and you know when i heard that for the first time i went 
how that resonates with what I've with what I've been experiencing doing where I see success and you know you, these things temper you into into that bigger picture yeah so you went into what failure looks like but what for you looks it, what does success look like for you I mean best coffee shop in the world when I'm, possibly the best <laughs> coffee I've ever had and I probably won't ever have something like I, that I, again but okay, how do you so, define so success that that kind of success is transient. Mm. That moment of euphoria of being the best coffee shop in the world probably lasted somewhere between two and seven seconds. You know, hell, I got it, and then you go, shit, what I do now? <laughs> what, what, what's our next? And I think the joy for me is in the tinkering, and success for me is when I'm in a space where I can tinker, where I have the resources to tinker. And I think... Those resources we need to be careful of as well, um, and, and you need to understand the theory of constraints. I think having unlimited money uh, to do something isn't the helpful thing. I actually think there's there's a sweet spot where you have enough resources to get started and get going and, and bring things to market, but but not enough that it doesn't create a constraint to sharpen your thinking. Um, there's the various classic stories that you know architects say well you know if only I could build a property you know uh, in the way I wanted but I always have to conform to the size of the plot the environment of the plot the legislation but I'm prepared to bet if you gave them a green field in the middle of nowhere they wouldn't know where to get started with no regulations mm. you know and no budget and no home requirement or business requirement. You need to know that you're building the dream house for this person on that plot with this view, with, with these constraints. And suddenly the inspiration starts coming through because we start problem solving, not just imagine, Im, imagining. If I, if I said to you, Mushudo, invent something, you know, to your heart's content, you'd sit there contemplating your navel and eventually, you know, go on Facebook or whatever, it is, probably Instagram, <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, and off you'd go. But if I said, you know, what's your biggest hardship with your microphone setup and, and how could we make that better, you'd probably come up with three really good ideas. Yeah. So do you, do you then look at sort of restrictions, constraints and challenges as being... Um, somehow a motivation or inspiration for work that you can actually create and develop and that can actually feed into the innovation and creativity? That feeds into the disruption and anarchy. So give me a set of rules and I passionately set about trying to break them. <laughs> tell me how it is and I'll tell you how it could be. <laughs> so, yeah, so I think, I think for me that's, that's where I find the edges and the edges are where things are exciting, you know. When, when I go mountain biking and there's a big wide road and I'm going at 40 k's an hour, it's not particularly exciting, but give me a piece of single track and, uh, and a target to, to reach, you know, I'm, I'm flat out, balls to the walls, having, having fun. I, I think we find that joy at the edges. Um, and when I was told that coffee is bitter and you need to put sugar in it, I went, no, 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 there's got to be a better way. There's, there's got to be something else. And, um, you know, the whole thing of flavor, not bitterness. And then we were chasing acidity. And then I, I was sitting with a group of judges in New York and we were going, hell, we're all tired of this acidic coffee. And we went, why do we like the acidity? And we realized that acidity wasn't the good coffee, but the good coffee had acidity. But now we were chasing acidity and it was tiring our palates out. And we suddenly realized we all love sweetness. And I went, I'm getting back home and I'm building a, a coffee called Black Honey, and I did. It took me a year and a half to do it 
from that point, but I knew what I wanted to do. I didn't know if it could be done, but I did it, and pretty much the the, the speciality coffee world is now talking about sweetness. Um, I'm not giving myself credit. It was, it was group epiphany, but uh, the credit I will give myself is relentlessly trying to build that coffee and building it first, and, and that was a world first. But it, it's knowing that there's a rule and knowing that I want to break that rule, not necessarily knowing why I want to break that rule, but knowing that it ought to be broken. Yeah. Um, so the constraints give you the rules to, to strain against. Yeah. Um, earlier you mentioned that it took you a year to find the space um, to make the coffee shop and then a year to build the shop. Mm. And then now you're talking about a year and a half to make you know this exact perfect kind of coffee that you wanted to create you seem to be okay mm-hmm. with taking your time to build things in a patient way. Um, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I, I'm starting to learn, and maybe there's a book in this, um, I'm starting to learn the power of procrastination. And, you know, I, I went to a, a coach, uh, I think you know her, Nikki, and I went I'm I'm so lazy, and she went lazy. You you're the least lazy person I know. Yeah. I went, but sometimes I just can't move my ass on something. And she went, no, you you figuring it out. It's not ready yet. Mm. And you know, if you can combine drive with procrastination, you start forging into something. I'm not I'm not talking about just laziness. And sometimes we feel it's laziness, and and we start feeling bad about ourselves for not generating a result quicker. But are you trying to generate mediocrity or are you trying to get the things right? And I'm not talking about perfectionism here. The chase of perfectionism is, is horrible and stupid. But I am talking about the chase of good enough. And good enough means different things in different environments. Good enough for me meant a coffee that changed the world. Mm. It wasn't a coffee that just tasted lacquer. You know, that I could do on Wednesday. Yeah. So it was sourcing coffees, relentless testing, finding out what produced sweetness, which origins, what roast profiles, how those blends worked with each other. Um, the only thing I knew on day one that it was going to be called black honey. I didn't, and, and, and that was my guiding principle. I had absolutely no idea what it would be comprised of. That is insane. So how, didn't, how then do you sort of reconcile that um, good enough versus a godlike way of of doing things and try and find the the thing that the golden thread that you're actually chasing I think it's about going all in on on whatever it is when you're doing being relentless going through it um, not accepting those compromises you know the death by a thousand cuts Yes, there are always compromises in any in any project. There are restraints that are that there are constraints that are going to hold you in, into a certain path. But if you've got that godlike passion, it doesn't matter if you didn't finish first. You you're going at it and and you're going through it. And there, there's there's a contagion that goes with that, and and the team gets it, and and we're all running with it, and people who are there for a job, actually fall by the wayside because they, they, they just can't be part of that. It's just, it just gets too intense. It gets, you know, it's not for them. Yeah. They start not showing up. Sure. I don't know. Every time I speak to you, it just feels like you open a new portal. Like, when are you writing a book? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, 
Uh, well, I am writing a book on coffee, but I keep adding to it, and it's never going to be finished. But but maybe it's time to write a book on procrastination and and kamiwaza and the interrelation of the two. Uh, you might have a point. I I, I, uh, I think there's something there. What do you think um, an entrepreneur um, starting out, you know, trying to see what could be the thing that they build? I think we, we talk about entrepreneurs that have already built something or are trying to build something. But like if I'm going, you know, I just I really have a passion for solving problems. Um, how do I become an entrepreneur? How do I build a business? How do I build a startup? Um, do you ever okay, sort of I, I think I yeah, I, I think I've got an answer to that. I think if you are an entrepreneur, a, a natural entrepreneur, not a forced entrepreneur not somebody who's trying to avoid a job. You're seeing opportunities everywhere. And I think the entrepreneur's plague is knowing which, on, which opportunities not to take, mm. which ones don't have a product market fit. Uh, I, I wish I looked at that a little more deeply and I'd be a lot more financially successful <laughs> than I am, but I'm, I'm always trying to fit square pegs into round holes. Um, not necessarily the clever path. Uh, the clever path is, is, is when you when you actually uh, have that product market fit. So I think there is that question of product market fit. But I think if we go back to Kamiwaza, I don't think that matters because if success is not external, if it's internal and and you're driving at that, uh, then it's okay. And I, I think the entrepreneurial problem is, is filtering what not to do. I, w- I was lucky enough um, about four or five years ago to do um, the Alt-MBA, and one of our projects uh, was a four-hour project. There were meant to be five of us in the group. There were only four of us in the group in the end, and we had to come up with 100 business plans in this four-hour period. Uh, we stopped at 120. And I'm going to tell you that ideas are cheap. And people who are so worried about protecting the idea or uh, coming up with a killer idea, it's bullshit. It's utter crap. Uh, stop it. Cut it out. Have a good idea. Um, have a look that, you know, there is an opportunity there, that you are doing a level of disruption, that you're not just me doing whatever it is. And, you know, then it's all in execution. Um, you know, so often we think, you know, it's the pioneers who won. No, the pioneers are the ones who are dead face down in the mud with the arrows in their back. You know, yeah. the successful ones are, are, are the ones who persevered, who pushed through and who executed well. And I, I think that brings you to the next thing is team. The things that make a successful entrepreneur don't successful, uh, necessarily make a successful whole team and you need to see what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are and stop working on your weaknesses but find people who address those weaknesses so that you can work to your strengths yeah is there anything you're afraid of um boredom (laughs) financial insecurity uh uh, bad food um (laughs) Uh, unless it's really bad street food, in which case I'm in love again. Um, no, I, I, I tend not to be. I tend not to be ruled ruled by fear. Probably only uh, security being being the fear that uh, that I would really really have if if you were to sit me down on a couch and 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 find out what what my real childhood problems were. <laughs> um, okay, um, just to cap this. Um, what does the future look like? Um, I think you've had an illustrious, you know, career, done incredible things, and I, I ex- 
I, I really respect your sort of philosophical, philosophical perspective, especially on Kamiwaza and like the way of doing things and ex- executing things at the highest level. Um, what comes next for someone that's sort of been able to get to the top of their industry in the world, which doesn't happen very often for a lot of people? What comes next? I think I want to share a lot more, and I know it sounds trite, but I think it is the whole Maslow thing, and I really want to help other people on their projects. I, I want to innovate for other people. I want to disrupt for other people. I want to sit on people's boards and analyze the kind of problems that they're having, and I think most problems are universal truths. I, I don't think there's anything new under the sun. Mm. I don't think, you know, other than technology, we've invented a damn thing. We still have the same predicaments we sit with. You know, I have this thing I want to build it. How do I build it? I have this thing that I built. I want to sell it. I have this this thing I've built. I want people to know about it. Those, those are kind of universals and, uh, you know, go to any business and it's it's going to be the same problems with accountability of people and responsibility and you know how do we measure things and what do we measure and we know that what we measure improves so what should we be measuring what's the right metric all these kind of things are, are things that inspire me and and I really uh, I learn so much when I help mm. It's it's a very strange thing, but when you're in this mentoring, helping space, you see things a lot clearer. Have uh, uh, you? You'll know this. I'm going to turn. I'm going to turn the microphone on you for a second. <laughs> uh, have you ever been asked to write your own bio? You've got to give this biography about yourself for a talk you're going to do. It's the hardest thing in the I world you can possibly Absolutely be asked. <laughs> I just, I, um, yeah, I, I get like ice cream brain freeze instantly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like go away, you know, leave me alone. I'd rather not do your gig. But it's that kind of thing. But the clarity you can see somebody else's problem through your problems lenses mm. is amazing, inspiring, and useful. So, I mean, you've been sort of dropping hints about this new project. Are you starting an incubator, David? Is that what you're doing? <laughs> No, but no, but I want to. Uh, maybe that's that's a good idea. No, what what I am doing is um, I looked at chocolate, and mm. uh, okay, let's let the cat out of the bag. I'm created, creating a new chocolate brand. When I started with coffee, I asked one question: Why is coffee bitter? Is is bitterness a necessary part of of coffee? And why do I need to put sugar in my coffee to make it taste good? And I went down that journey and uh, around about March when I had nothing better to do and it, it, it was uh, my navel and my thoughts and all those kind of things, I went, has anyone done this with chocolate? And the equipment's the same as what we use more or less. Why does dark chocolate have to taste dry and bitter? I hate, uh, for the record, I'm the only foodie in the world who hates dark chocolate. Mm. Well, I discovered I didn't hate dark chocolate. I hate bad dark dark chocolate and I don't think I'd ever been ex- excuse me exposed to what it can be and um, the idea that I can have a two ingredient chocolate just chocolate and milk and make it taste incredible make it not cause a sugar rush not uh, offend the keto guys mm. not offend me the foodie have something delicious that's Moorish that's actually healthy um, and that's the route I'm on and I think we're going to be coming to market pretty soon Oh, wow. I'm surprised by the pretty soon because all the other projects seem to take a much longer period to, to come to fruition. <laughs> hey, I've had, 
I've had uh, what are we on 180 days or something? Where, where are we on the on the calendar? I don't know. So I, I, I think know. I'm there. Um, so the first iteration of the product is ready. The, the chocolate actually tastes good. Mm. Um, uh, the uh, I'll, I'll tell you a story about where we're sourcing the chocolate from. So we we got chocolate in from all over the world. Um, and we started mixing with, with various milk powders and then processing the milk powders in various interesting ways um, and then blending at different ratios. And, and we, we've got a couple of experiments left to do there. But, you know, the last couple of percent on, on the milk to cocoa bean ratio is, is nearly settled in. So now we're finalizing the packaging and uh, then we have product number one, which is going to be the stock milk chocolate. And no malatol, xylitol, olitol, whatever toll. It, it's just just those two ingredients. Um, and yeah, it 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 has been fun. There was something else I was going to say about it, but it's completely escaped my mind uh, for the moment. But uh, I, again, I've set out to build a world-beating product. I want this to sell all over the world, and and I want the world to take notice. That's incredible. Um, I just want to say I'm I'm deeply inspired by your energy to not just innovate, but disrupt and also perform at a level that most people um, only can aspire to. I really am inspired by that perspective of wanting to perform at that level for a long time and keep trying to test and learn as much as possible on different things that you're trying out. And I, I, I just really appreciate that. And I just wanted to say that. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I think... I <laughs> I think we don't have the right to not do that. Mm. I think I, 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 it took me a long time to learn this. I, I, yes, I started from a, a privileged point of view and at a very young age I was managing a big group of people and I think I started my life like any arrogant young kid does who's in charge of a lot, looking down on certain people and going, you're not educated, you've got a lowly job, you know, and as you start growing and as you start actually talking to people at the lowest levels of society, whether it's a street person, uh, and I'm not talking about the, the, the mentally insane here, I'm talking about people who've had a hard time or, or people who've just never had an education, or you're on a building site working with guys, and you discover the intelligence and the, the natural abilities, and they might not be natural abilities that you necessarily have an affinity to. You know, I'm a little bit of an intellectual, I guess, so I'll be drawn to the more intellectual people, which you do find on that building site or farmyard or whatever it is at any job level. Uh, hell, we've got a scholar at, at, at Truth right now who has an, has an interesting entrepreneurial journey. You know, and, and you start realizing that we are all equals and, and you start truly believing that. And then you look at people who haven't got that passion to do things at that level. And that's not because they built differently. That's not because of opportunity. It's because they gave up. Mm. And whether they gave up because life kicked it out of them at a old or a young age, or whether they just didn't realize they could, I think it's our responsibility to let them know that they can and, and push them and, and let them yearn for something better. Um, you know, I, I, there, was, there was a book uh, that was in vogue, uh, it must have been in the 80s, by Tom Peters called In Search of Excellence. And he asked the question, he says in there, how long does it take to become the world's best waiter? And you look at that and you go, 
well, you know, you have to make it do this and then you have to go to that. And he said, no, 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 forget all of that. It takes an instant. The moment you decide to be the world's best waiter, you walk differently. You carry your cleaning cloth over your arm in a different way. You stand more upright. And from that moment on, you're proving to the world that you are the world's best waiter. And it's, it's that, that drive, that energy. And don't tell me you can be the world's best waiter at the Wimpy and not have the world notice. The world's going to notice. You're not going to be forgotten. But if you're going to go there going, uh, there's that English term, jobsworth. I, I don't know if you know it. You know, it's like, would you do this? No, more than my jobsworth. And it became known as a jobsworth. You know, you're just there for the job. Mm. And when you have that attitude, life sucks. Like, truly sucks. You give up on your life. And I don't know, the, the longest days I've ever had at, at work, I think the worst job in the world has got to be being a store clerk in a quiet store where absolutely nothing happens the whole day. Maybe you see two people. Sometimes the best job is, is in construction or being a waiter on a busy floor where the rush starts. Mm. You suddenly realize it's time to go home and you haven't had time for lunch. You know, and that happens to all of us in our jobs. It, it doesn't matter whether it's a physical job or an intellectual job. But those days when you're just so inspired, yeah, and you might be, you know, a little bit physically beat up or a little bit of mentally beat up, but there's a smile on your face at the end of those days. It, it, my, my late father used to say, it's not the work you've done that makes you tired, it's the work you've still got to do. And uh, I, think, I think that's totally true. We actually are inspired um, another book, uh, what's his name? Chris McDougall. He wrote the book Born Free. His, his net, next book was Natural Born Heroes. And he talks about what is our role uh, as a human being. And he says it's to be useful, mm. to be useful to others. And, and that's where we find our, our passion and drive. And when we start looking at life through that lens of Kamiwaza, through doing greatness, through being great. And we're all entitled to be great. I mean, yes, it's not just our mothers and fathers who, if we're lucky, tell us how wonderful and cute and beautiful and clever <laughs> and strong and how we throw a ball. You know, it, 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 goes, it, it goes beyond that. If you can have that core belief that at something you are the best in the world and you are, and I'm going to tell everyone it's really easy to be the best in the world, and there is a secret. There's a trick. You can be the best of the world at anything because there's, the secret is you get to define which world you want to be the best in. Mm. And once you understand that, once you define that, there's nothing stopping you. David, when's the, when's the book coming? That's what I want to know. <laughs> you can't say all of that yeah, and then not not write me. a book. <laughs> 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 oh man, I've really, really appreciated this time. Um, I really appreciate you. Thank you so much for this interview. Th thanks, dude. It's always great uh, spending time with you. And uh, yeah, thanks for the encouragement. It, it works in two directions. Cool.